Reflections on the Bible Creation, Fall, and Sacrifice by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 7 And Daniel says, keep the men apart and let's question them one at a time. Now, in terms of the forensics of this deliberation, that's very logical, very lawyerly thing to do, right? But in terms of the structure of the underlying problem, it's also brilliant because it severs the mimetic relationship that gave rise to the passion, that gave rise to the crime, that gave rise to the false accusation, and so on. In other words, it goes right to the heart of this problem. So separate the two men. Before Daniel questions them, Interestingly, he says, You have grown old in wickedness, and now the sins of your earlier days have overtaken you. In other words, there's a hint here in this text of an existing resentment against this, these men. You see, it, doesn't, it only surfaces here, but suddenly we get a little hint that there were sins of earlier time that are now, they're now having to pay for the social resentment against those who have been the arbiters of the social scene. You, and what was this sin? What was this sin of theirs in the past? Listen to this. Daniel says, The sins of your earlier days have overtaken you. Your acquittal of guilty men. In other words, they were too lenient on people that this crowd, this community, thought should be punished. I mean, that's, it's, the irony is amazing. And, the, and what the text tells us about social affairs is incredible. Now, he separates them. And he says to the first man, what tree did you see them lying under, the, Susanna and her, and, and her uh, uh, adulterous partner? What tree? And he says, the Mastec tree. And uh, Daniel says, your lie recoils on your own head. Now, Daniel, at this point, doesn't know the other witness's testimony. But he declares, he's, by the way, he's speaking out loud. He's not having a private conversation with this, with this man. He's having a very loud public conversation with him. And it's a one-way conversation. And he's saying to him, True enough, your lie recoils on your head. The angel of God has already received your sentence from him and will slash you in half. So... Daniel is not exactly waiting on all the evidence to come in. <laughs> he dismisses him, brings the other man. He says, what? And before he asks the other man, he calls him spawn of Canaan, not of Judah. In other words, he says, you foreigner. You see? He calls, you, you alien. You see, it's some kind of snarling, contemptuous thing designate him, designating him as an outsider. And then he says, which tree? And the guy says, the oak tree. And he says, Daniel says, true enough, your lie recoils upon your head. The angel of God is waiting with sword to drive home and split you, destroying the pair of you. In both cases, the punishment was severing or splitting. And at the end, it says, destroying the pair of you. So, again, just structurally, there's this, there's this thing about severing this strange alliance, but also of killing the two victims. Okay. Daniel is quite a lawyer. And he has been pronounced, he's, he's also the judge. He has been pronouncing the verdict. The next verse says, Then the whole assembly shouted, Blessing God, the Savior of those who trust him, and they turned on the two elders whom Daniel had convicted of false evidence. As prescribed by the law of Moses, they were sentenced to the same punishment and they were put to death. The last verse in the story is, From that day forward, Daniel's reputation stood high with the people. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. The story starts out with somebody else's reputation. Joachim, the most prestigious man in the community. And there's envy right away of this man's prestige. 
And it, the whole melodrama unfolds. And then we have at the end Daniel's sudden rising star as the prestigious one. And where does that prestige come from? If we were to go back and try to find out where Joachim's came from, we might find something like this. We might have to go back several generations. But we might find something like this. But now we have Daniel's prestige. And on what is Daniel's prestige based? Now, you know, there's a Jewish midrash which says, I talk about it all the time, which says, if everyone thinks you're guilty, you must be innocent. And the genius of that is not doesn't have to do with, with, uh, with juridical innocence, but with another kind of social innocence. That is to say, somebody could, could be an actual evildoer and their, cul their moral culpability could be exploited by a community uh, for reasons that have nothing to do fundamentally with their moral culpability. And in that sense, they're innocent even though they're guilty of the crimes accused. You see what I'm saying? There is a kind of structural innocence. If we take someone who happens to be guilty of a crime and we exploit their moral failure in order to generate social harmony and social camaraderie, then in the deepest sense, socially, in terms of our standing, they are innocent. They are innocent of all the sins that we put on them before we ran them out of, out of town. The scapegoating process relieves us of our sins. They die for our sins. It's our social tensions that they relieve, and they're innocent of those. So the innocence of the victim has to do with not whether or not he actually stole the horse, but whether or not all of the self-righteousness that we generate by hanging him for stealing the horse is something we deserve or whether we got it by loading all our sins onto him, you see. And he's innocent of our sin. But the Midrash, Jewish Midrash, has to do with unanimity. If there's ultimate unanimity, then we have to say he's innocent. And I think that's absolutely brilliant. Now, in this story, the only real unanimity comes when the crowd decides to stone the two judges. We have justice. Evildoers, false accusers are punished. But in terms of the, the mimetic dynamic, we have the sacrificial system operating even more intensely because it now has a more or less respectable cause for justifying itself. And it made me think of a poem by Margaret Atwood entitled Siren's Song. And the sirens, you know, were these bird-shaped monsters on the shore that and they would lure sailors away from their journeys and so on. And this is only peripherally related to what we're talking about here, but it came to mind as I was reading this story and I went and looked it up. Because I think it's the way in which we are trapped by the sacrificial system in our time. What Daniel did is that he, he championed the cause of the victim and turned that cause into another victimization. He, he offered new victims as a way of championing the victim. So that's why I thought of the Margaret Atwood poem. Here's how it goes. This is the one song everyone would like to learn, the song that is irresistible, the song that forces men to leap overboard in squadrons even though they see the beached skulls, the song nobody knows because everyone who has heard it is dead and others can't remember. Shall I tell you the secret? And if I do, will you get me out of this bird suit? I don't enjoy it here, squatting on this island, looking picturesque and mythical, with these two feathery maniacs. I don't enjoy singing this trio, fatal and valuable. I will tell the secret to you, to you, only to you, come closer. This song is a cry for help. Help me. Only you, only you can. You are unique at last. Alas, 
It is a boring song, but it works every time. <laughs> but you see, that's a funny song. But what is that telling us? It's saying, you want to save the victim? Come over here. If you want to save the victim, and everybody that has been touched by the biblical revelation wants to save the victim. If we don't, we haven't been touched by it. And the question is, can we save the victim without perpetuating the victimization process? And Daniel, of course, does not. This is a story about a community rescuing a victim who is about to be thrown to the sacrificial fire by throwing a substitute victim in her place. In other words, this is a story about Satan casting out Satan. Can Satan cast out Satan? Satan has been casting out Satan since the foundation of the world. Satan is the accuser, the figure of the, in the Johannine Gospel that Jesus calls the father of lies, the murderer from the beginning, is the accuser. Satan has always been casting out Satan. Satan is the force that generates social solidarity at the expense of the victim. It made one huge mistake, this Satan, this father of lies, the murderer from the beginning. Paul alludes to it when he says, if the powers of this world had known, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. Because that crucifixion began the destruction of the power by which Satan cast out Satan. So that the people who wrote this Daniel 13 story, the person who wrote it and the people who read it in the first instance, didn't see what we just saw about it. And we were just able to see what we saw about it, not because we're smart, but because we live after the veil of the temple has been rent. We live in the light of the revelation of the cross. And we can see certain sacrificial events that others before us could not see. In the story of Susanna in the book of Daniel, Satan was casting out Satan. But he was doing so 200 years before the temple veil was rent from top to bottom. Melville's Billy Budd was written almost 2,000 years after that momentous event, and it is a, another view of the process of Satan casting out Satan. One of the ways in which Satan casts out Satan is that he gets himself cast out. And I'm here talking, obviously, anthropomorphically when I talk of Satan this way you know I'm not talking about a metaphysical being somebody somebody has said that uh, Satan's greatest trick is to convince us that he does not exist and Girard says Satan's second greatest trick is to convince us that he does it's what Robert Hamilton Kelly calls the generative mimetic scapegoating mechanism the GMSM so Satan casts out Satan speaking anthropomorphically Satan cast out Satan often by getting himself cast out and that's what happens in Melville's Billy Budd the satanic figure there is Claggart the master at arms Melville knows perfectly well what the author of the book of Daniel knows and what Shakespeare knows even better and that is that all these passions are generated mimetically out of envy and Claggart is in, incredibly envious of Billy Budd, who's young and handsome and strong and, and everybody likes him and so on. He's, in this story, he is what Joachim is in the story of Susanna. And this is what Melville says about Claggart. Into the gall of Claggart's envy, inf he infused the vitriol of his contempt. Claggart's scandalized by Billy and in turn wants to scandalize him. So, Satan is in this story Satan casts out Satan by getting himself cast out. But first he has to he has to scandalize Billy to get Billy to cast him out. And so he accuses Satan is the accuser. He accuses Billy in the same way that the two elders accuse Susanna. He accuses Billy of being a traitor. But his eyes are the important part. Claggart deliberately advanced within short range of Billy and mesmerically 
that's the right way to say that word, mesmerically looked him in the eye and briefly recapitulated his accusation. And this looking him in the eye, I want you to bear that in mind. Looking him in the eye, it's almost impossible. There's a lot written in, in anthropological literature about, the, about this, the evil eye and so on. Uh, the, the effect, the contagion that comes from a stare. And that's why in inner city gangs now, there's a term for this. It's called, uh, oh, I saw it the other day in some story. Anyway, it's, it's, it's a dare. If you look somebody in the eye and you hold, you know, lock onto them, it's an absolute dare. And if you look away without challenging them, then you have, given, you have capitulated. So it's the same thing that's going on today. So Claggart is scandalizing him by looking him in the eye and accusing him. And Billy gags at the... Billy it, it stutters, so he can't re respond. And he's there in the presence of Captain Veer, whom he reveres a great deal. And he can't respond. And Melville says, those... Speaking of a change that went on in Claggart's eyes when he made the accusation. You know, when in the, in the uh, Passion story, when Judas in God, John's Gospel goes out to betray Jesus, it says, and Satan entered him at that moment. You get exactly the same thing here. When at the moment of the accusation, which is the satanic business, here's what happens to Claggart's eyes. Those lights of human intelligence, losing human expression, were gelidly protruding like the alien eyes of certain uncatalogued creatures of the deep. You, we have come here this morning to catalog those creatures. That's what, that's what this business is about. And then he goes on to say, the first mesmeristic glance was one of serpent fascination. The last was the paralyzing lurch of the torpedo fish. And you have it all summed up right there. Desire, envy, resentment, and sacrifice is all summed up metaphorically right there. The first mesmeristic glance was one of serpent fascination. The last was as the paralyzing lurch of the torpedo fish. Then Veer says, because Billy's stuttering, he can't respond to this accusation that he's a, a traitor. He can't speak. He's, he's tongue-tied. And Veer says, speak, man. Defend yourself. And Billy's straining to unlock his tongue. Melville says his straining to speak Quote, gave an expression to the face like that of a condemned vestal priestess in the moment of being buried alive and in the first struggle against suffocation, the sacrificial offering. And then, to echo that again, Veer says, take your time. And that even this little act of kindness on the captain's part exacerbates Billy's frustration the more. Quote, as Melville says, bringing to his face an expression which was as a crucifixion to behold. But suddenly, Billy has been scandalized, and Satan survives by casting out Satan. And Billy's arm shoots forward, hits Claggard right in the forehead, and, he, and Claggard drops to the deck. And the captain says, Fated boy. Now he's the marked one. See, he's Cain. You see that? Now he's marked. And it says that Veer, Captain Veer and Billy Budd picked up the dead Claggart, handling him like a dead snake. In the film version of this, Claggart dies with a smile on his face. This is absolutely important. Absolutely important. He dies with a smile on his face. Why? Because Satan has succeeded in casting out Satan. He has passed on the disease. He's given the world another victim. He's become the victim, and he's marked the next one. It's like passing on the baton. You see? It's Satan's business. Why are people killing each other all over this planet? Because their fathers were killed by the fathers of these people they're killing. You see, passing on the baton. And Satan, in this story, Claggart, dies with a smile on his lips. 
And then Veer, Captain Veer, of him, Melville says, slowly he uncovered his face, and the effect was as if the moon emerging from eclipse should reappear with quite another aspect than that which had gone into hiding. The father in him, manifested towards Billy thus far in the scene, was replaced by the military disciplinarian. You see, the father, he's, there are two fathers here. It's the father that Jesus knows about who's kind and forgiving. And then there's the father who's the father of lies, the murderer from the beginning. And Veer's now having to become the second one. And he says we must have a drumhead court and there's been a murder and, a, and the murderer must die. So Veer is now having to preside over the process whereby Satan is going to cast out Satan. Captain Veer speaks to the drumhead court. All of them want to acquit Billy because they realize that Claggart was the scandal that he was and that Billy was essentially innocent even though he's technically guilty. They want to acquit him. Veer says we can't do it because there have been mutinies. The French are rebelling against their king. Uh, we are in, we're in time of crisis and we can't afford not to carry out this sentence. Veer says to the, to the court, to the people the Fortopman's deed, however it may be worded in the announcement, will be plain homicide committed in a flagrant act of mutiny. What penalty for that should follow, they know. But if it does not follow, why? They will ruminate. You know what sailors are. Will they not revert to the recent outbreak at Nor, which was a mutiny? Aye, they know the well-founded alarm, the panic it struck throughout England. Your clement sentence, they would account pusillanimous. In other words, you, they would think we're just afraid of them. They would think that we flinch, that we are afraid of them, afraid of practicing a lawful rigor singularly demanded at this juncture, lest it should provoke new troubles. So he says we have to convict it, because if we don't, the crowd will think we're scared of them. And we can't let them think we're scared of them because we are. It has to mean that, doesn't it? That's what Pilate said. That's what Herod said. That's what the chief priest said. And so Billy is hung. There are two things warring in our world at the deepest level, myth and gospel. They're both the story of events such as these. They're both the story of our world. And, the, and myth is, the, word, the root word is mu, which means to close the mouth and close the eyes. To tell a euphemistic story that flatters the community of victimizers and makes their cultural uh, enterprise viable. And the gospel is the thing that reveals the perversity and declares that the living God is revealed in the victim and not in the community of rejoicing victimizers. And that those are the two forces at war in our world. So the question is, will the force of myth prevail? Myth closes the eyes and closes the mouth. And so Billy is hung, and then Melville says, the silence at the moment of execution and for a moment or two continuing thereafter was gradually disturbed by a sound not easily to be verbally rendered. The seeming remoteness of its source was because of its murmurous indistinctness since it came from close by, even from the men massed on the ship's open deck. Being inarticulate, it was dubious in significance, further than it seemed to indicate some capricious revulsion of thought or feeling such as mobs ashore are liable to. In other words, the mob begins to murmur a few minutes after the execution. That murmuring means that the myth did not hold. Myth means close the mouth and close the eye. It's to believe the sacrificial rationale. And now you have a mob murmuring. And at the burial of Billy, when the screaming seabirds come around where his body hits the water, Melville says, quote, an uncertain movement began among them in which some encroachment was made. In other words, they began to close in on the officers of the ship. We're this close to a mutiny. Here's a situation in which the sacrificial event has failed. Why has it failed? Because the veil of the temple has been torn from top to bottom. It's now happening more or less, more and more in our world, out in the open. That is to say, 
the sacrificial underpinnings are visible enough and our and our penchant for identifying with the victim and empathizing with the victim and seeing the victim as Christ is so much a part of our world that it doesn't work anymore. Well, what happens when it doesn't work? The mob begins to murmur. That doesn't... You see, it says here the encroachment began. The encroachment... What would they have done if if the, the drumbeat dissolved the multitude? Melville says. The drumbeat dissolved the multitude. So they, they restored order, but just barely. Just barely and just in time. And that was in 1860. So now we're in another world. Can we, does the drumbeat restore order? I don't know. Well, this is the world in which Satan is progressively less able to cast out Satan and make it stick. And so you get the murmuring of the crowd, unsatisfied. There's no sacrificial catharsis because there's too much empathy for the victim in the, in the social setting. Too much, too much suspicion, too much knowledge about the machinations of the sacrificial system, too much understanding, not in the intellectual level, but at, at the ethical <laughs> level and even at the visceral level, too much understanding. Of the, of the nature of the satanic accusation. Too much suspicion about it. So that reaching that marvelous sacrificial crescendo which makes everybody, restores order to the community and so on, is, isn't possible anymore. Because we live in a world after the veil of the temple has been rent from top to bottom. Satan is losing the power to cast out Satan. As Satan loses the power to cast out Satan, his power to restore social and psychological equilibrium is correspondingly diminished. And it is in the resulting disequilibrium that the passions are bred that lead eventually to a mob demanding another victim. So it doesn't mean we're out of the woods because the temple veil has been torn from top to bottom or that Satan can't cast out Satan anymore. It means that we're stuck with Satan. It means the whole thing begins to fester. Unless, what's the answer to it? We haven't talked about it here today at all. But the answer to it, if the New Testament is right, if the Sermon on the Mount is right, if Paul's letter to the Romans and the Galatians is right, the answer to it is to renounce desire. Well, tell that to the world. You see, what the world wants to hear is that we can cast out we, that Satan can still cast out Satan? It just doesn't want to know that it's Satan who's doing it. But the ironies in the situation are manifold. In this morning's New York Times, there's an article about the, the assassination of the Mexican presidential candidate. The first sentence in the article by by Seth Maidan's New York Times is this. The man accused of killing the heir apparent to the Mexican presidency said he had planned for years to shoot a, po- to shoot a political figure to publicize his pacifist views. <laughs> Satan casting out Satan. How do we get rid of Satan? Well, the New Testament says you start by renouncing desire. Nobody wants to hear that. In the meantime, however, one thing we can do, and that's what Jesus did when they brought the adulterous woman to him. The scribes and Pharisees bring a woman that's been caught in adultery. This is very much like Susanna. And as a matter of fact, the church links the two in its liturgies, the liturgical readings. They make her stand in full view of everybody. Again, so important to focus. This is like, this is like the, the elders taking the veil off of Susanna. There she is. Now, remember... Claggart looking into Billy's eyes, this thing about catching the, 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 the fire, scandalizing. Jesus bent down, and the, and the Greek means to bow down. You see, to bow down. It's to look away. It's to look away from those who have the, the, in their eyes that same kind of, that same kind of satanic passion that Claggart had in his. Not to engage them, not to challenge, 
just to bend down, look down, which would be my advice to, to any kid caught in the inner city gang stuff. You see, Just look down. Forget about the honor thing. It's a bunch of hogwash. Just look down. <laughs> Get about your business. Try to make it into your mid-twenties. You know, look down. So Jesus looks down. He's not, he's not there to, you know, maintain his honor. He's there to save this woman. And he bends down and writes in the sand. And they persist. Should we or should we not? Because why? Their sacrificial appetite is whetted. They want... And you see, this is the place where in the world where Satan casts out Satan, the only thing you can hope to do is redirect the sacrificial appetite. You can't hope to dissolve it. The only thing you can hope to do is redirect it toward people that are more culpable and therefore engage in a sacrificial episode that's more morally tolerable. You see? But Jesus could have said, well, how about you over there? Where's the man who was with her? Or where, you know, all, anything like that. But he looks down, and then he says, if there's one of you who has not sinned, let him throw the first stone. And he looks down again. He just looks up long enough to say it. You can imagine he's staring into the blue, not looking anybody in the eye, just saying it as though he's saying it to the atmosphere, and looks down again. No challenge. No challenge. He's not going to fall into the, to the trap that Billy Budd fell into. And slowly it dissolves. And they start moving away. And Gerard has made an interesting point about this story, and that is that the mimetic process by which that, that led them there is also the mimetic process that leads them away. The first one goes, and then the next one has his example to follow, the next one has two examples to follow. And the last one to leave is just as much of a sheep as, the, as when he came. But, the, but there's moral progress being made because he's, he's walking away from sacrifice rather than towards it. This is not, by the way, as you will immediately realize, a story that tells us what to do with hardened criminals. The issue here is not the culpability of the accused or how to take care of uh, you know, criminals and so on and so forth. The issue is the process whereby we generate social and psychological stability. That's what was on trial for Jesus here. Their camaraderie. You see, that was what was on trial, and it was that that he undermined. The issue of her culpability was a secondary issue which he dealt with after they left. <laughs> the first things first was the nature of their social consensus. And that's what he challenged. And that's what the paraclete always challenges. That's why we don't have very much of it anymore in our world. Because the kind we had was sacrificial. The kind of social consensus we've so often had has been scapegoating social consensus. And when the paraclete begins to work on that, it starts to deconstruct. In John's Gospel... Just before his passion, Jesus says, Now sentence is being passed on this world. On this world has to do with anthropology. Sentence is being passed on this world, and the prince of this world is to be overthrown. The prince of this world is the, is the Satan who knows how to cast out Satan. The word, by the way, prince of this world, the, the Greek word, archon, means originator or founder. And Walter Wink, who has done such an exhaustive study of, of this, the idea of powers and principalities, says that the word archon means the incumbent power. So the incumbent power of this world, you see, is what is being overthrown at the cross. And then Jesus says, and when I am lifted up, on the cross, I shall draw all humanity to myself. So at the end of Mark's gospel, you have the quote-unquote angel in the tomb who says, do not be afraid. And then you have the women who hear what he has to say who leave terrified. 
And I would say both responses are appropriate. And that you get the same thing in John's gospel. The prince of this world is, be, is to be overthrown. That's a frightful event because it means that the way we have of holding culture together is dissolving. The conventional way of holding culture together is dissolving. The powers of this world have been broken. If they had known, said Paul, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. So that's, it's, a, it's a frightening situation. But on the other hand, Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all humanity to myself. And that, I think, corresponds with the angel saying, do not be afraid. There's some other process at work here, which you cannot see and which does not appear in the newspaper accounts you read every day about the falling apart of all these conventional cultural forms. There's another process at work. The event, for the evangelist Mark, the alternative, and I think he's right, for whatever that's worth, the alternative to the temple is prayer, faith, and forgiveness. And so as the effects of the temple, as the sacrificial resources that have held culture together since the foundation of the world begin to dissolve, it's prayer, faith, and forgiveness that the Gospels tell us have the power the Gospels reassure us, have the power to bring communities together in a way that is not scapegoating or sacrificial. So we have the, we have the Gospel's word for that assurance. And here and there, a little historical hint of the possibility. Last week I tried to use that story of Susanna and Daniel 13 to point out some things. And in that story, you'll remember, Susanna, who is falsely accused and innocent, cries out and protests her innocence. And the, the text tells us, quote, the Lord heard her cry. The biblical God hears the cry of the victim. Stirred in the heart of Daniel a spirit. And Daniel stood up in the middle of the accusing crowd, defended the victim, did the biblical thing and uh, convicted her false accusers and then they were stoned. Neither the readers of Daniel 13 nor the Lord God of the story of Daniel 13 heard the cry of the two elders. We don't hear them making a cry. We're told they were guilty, so were they to cry out, they would have to cry out something other than I'm innocent as the driven snow. Nevertheless, we never hear their cry. But the unanimity with which they were condemned and stoned raises a question. And the question is about their structural innocence, not their moral innocence as individuals, but the way in which whatever guilt they may have had was used by the community to create its solidarity. The point is that the violence against the elders achieved sacred status. Order was restored in the community after the two elders were stoned. You could say the members of the community raised their hands to stone Susanna and Daniel, like the angel on Mount Moriah, intervened and showed them a ram in the thicket. And they sacrificed somebody else instead, a better sacrificial offering, a more tolerable sacrificial offering. In other words, Daniel is doing the Abrahamic thing. He is offering another victim, a more morally tolerable victim, to a crowd that is in a mood to sacrifice a victim. However, Jesus says in the, in the synoptics, this generation will have to answer for every prophet's blood that has been shed since the foundation of the world. From the blood of Abel the just to the blood of Zechariah who was murdered between the altar and the sanctuary. For Again, a, a structural note here. The two murdered prophets mentioned, Abel the Just and Zechariah, are both murdered in connection with a sacrificial event. Uh, Abel is murdered by Cain when the, when the controversy over their respective sacrifices arises, and Zechariah is murdered between the altar and the sanctuary. That's an interesting note. But the question then is, 
if this generation, and you know, what is this generation? This generation, the generation that understands the, the, the biblical revelation enough to understand that we must now account for every one of these generative murders. The murder of Abel, by the way, is a generative murder. Cain goes off and founds the first city. So I'll talk about generative violence uh, in a few minutes. But let's ask ourselves, what does this mean? That this generation must account, must answer for every murder since the, every prophet murdered since the foundation of the world. What does the word prophet mean in that passage? Was Abel a prophet? You see, was Abel a prophet? What does the word prophet mean? I think it must mean someone misunderstood in his own generation and recognized as an agent of biblical revelation, an instrument of God's self-revelation to the world, only in retrospect. It means, I think, structurally at least, it means the victim whose plight only becomes fully recognizable in historical hindsight. And, for example, Girard has analyzed in detail two stories, Job in the Old Testament and Oedipus in the Greek tradition, from the point of view of the victimization of the main character of the story. The, the, Girard's book, Job, the Victim of His People, and his, his study of Oedipus in The Violence and the Sacred, are examples of precisely, I think, what that passage in the synoptics means. We must now go back, just as we have done almost in an offhanded way with the, with the victims of the Inquisition and, and the witch burnings and so on, we do it all the time. We go back and we account for, we answer for in some way, these, these murders. And Girard is simply trying to extend that now. We must go back and account for these that we didn't see before, but now that we can, we can now see. We must answer for all of the murders since the foundation of the world. We're now able to recognize these events, as the passage in Synoptic says, to, to answer for these deaths, because we are less and less caught up in the myths that justify them. Robert Hammer and Kelly uses this term for Girard's analysis of culture, the, the Generative mimetic scapegoating mechanism. He calls it the GMSM. And the GMSM is this product, it's the mechanism, what I call the sacrificial mechanism, is not visible to those on whom it bestows its social blessings because they receive those social blessings precisely because they have misrecognized the sacrificial nature of the violence that brought them all together. In other words, they have been, they have been, caught up in the spell cast by the justifying myth. The GMSM, I don't want to use this jargon too much, but the generative, what, what Hammer and Kelly calls the generative mimetic scapegoating mechanism, is generative. That's the main thing about it. In addition to social cohesion, it also generates the interpretive themes in terms of which its generativity goes unnoticed. By that I mean it generates themes in the story that become the central themes. And since these become the central themes, we don't notice that the story is generating cultural life. The, the story says the really important thing going on here right now is the question of the perjured testimony of the two elders. And that's definitely an issue in the story. I mean, that's... That's clearly an issue. But the, the, the story, according to the generative mechanism, will always be a story that highlights the theme and, and in a, as politicians say, defines the question that the text was, is used to raise and, w and what falls into the background and becomes unrecognizable is that the fact is the fact that what's going on is generating cultural cohesion. So that's what I mean when I say it generates not only the social cohesion but the the narrative thematic that keeps us that becomes so interesting and compelling. We think, oh, this is what it's about. We don't notice its generativity, its cultural generativity, 
And once we notice this cultural gen generativity, then we have to account for every murder since the foundation of the world. It's not a question of the lust of the elders. These are all interesting questions inside the story. The lust of the elders, the perjury of the elders, and so the innocence of Susanna, and so on and so forth. But the fundamental question, which we can recognize only, you could say, only after the crucifixion, is the generativity of the violence that, with which the story concluded. So, Gerard has argued that what is going on in the world is a struggle between myth and gospel. Myth being the account of human history and human events that tends to favor the themes generated by the, the people caught up in these events and to obscure the cultural generativity of these themes. And the gospel which reveals the cultural generativity of these events and reveals to us that whatever the moral situation, the moral culpability of the victims might be, there's a more fundamental question going on and that is the, 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 the fact that the violence against them, the unanimous, often unanimous violence against them, is generating culture, and culture requires it. So the struggle between myth and gospel, myth conceals the relationship between violence and culture, and gospel reveals it. And also gospel arouses in us a concern for the victim, and therefore a, an antipathy for the myths that 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 flatter the victimizing community and its and its rationale so if we're interested in the generativity of violence we're interested in origins if we're interested in origins we're interested in the past and so i wanted to read you something which i may have read to you before i can't remember but it's from a lecture by a scholar named Eric Hobsbawm, a lecture he gave at the Central European University in Budapest in last year, and it was it was printed in the uh, New York Review of Books in December. And here's what he says. Now, I, I read this in the context of a struggle in history between myth and gospel. Hobsbawm says, History is the raw material for nationalist or ethnic or fundamentalist ideologies as poppies are the raw material for heroin addiction. That's a wonderful metaphor. The past is an essential element in these ideologies. If there is no suitable past, it can always be invented. The past legitimizes. The past gives a more glorious background to a present that doesn't have much to show for itself. And then another really marvelous metaphor. He says... I used to think that the profession of history, unlike that, say, of nuclear physics, could at least do no harm. Now I know it can. Our studies can turn into bomb factories like the workshops in which the IRA has learned to transform chemical fertilizer into an explosive. Isn't that an amazing metaphor? We historians, he says, are, can be dangerous people. Why? because we can encourage the memory of certain events, which is, he doesn't use the same categories I'm using, but he, you would say, because we can encourage a mythological remembrance of these generative events. Or we can concoct the whole thing, which myth does sometimes. And then he goes on to say, but he does use the word myth, by the way. He goes on to say, myth and invention are essential to the politics of identity by which groups of people today, defining themselves by ethnicity, religion, or the past or present borders of states, try to find some certainty in an uncertain and shaking world. What does that mean? That means that, the, that this explosion of what we call nationalism, and I think we're probably wrong calling it that, even though that's certainly what it looks like, this explosion of nationalist sentiment if Hobsbawm is right, is coming about because of the shaking of the foundations. In other words, it's a reaction to the shaking of the foundation. It's an attempt to re-found a social order, to start again, to, to invoke a new 
sacrificial justification and start culture all over again. There's an absolutely incredible example of that, which I know I've talked to you about before because I did it when we were doing the Gospel of John. And it's recounted in Robert Kaplan's book called Balkan Ghost. But what I'm going to read to you is the is the review that appeared in the New York Times of that book and the reviews by Tina Rosenberg. And here's what she says. Just pair this, if you will, in your mind with what uh, Hobsbawm says about history. On June 28, 1987, an ambitious Serbian communist leader came to a field in Kosovo called Kosovo Polji, the, black, the field of black birds, on the anniversary of the defeat there of a Serbian commander. They'll never do this to you again, he pleaded to the crowd. Never again will anyone defeat you. That was the moment, writes Robert D. Kaplan, when the Serbian revolt against the Yugoslav Federation began. The speaker was Slobodan Milosevic. The defeat commemorated on that field took place in 1389, 600 years before, and what he is saying with great passion is, they'll never do this to you again. A year later, this is still from Rosenberg's review, a year later the coffin of the defeated Serb commander began a year-long pilgrimage through every village in Serbia, followed by multitudes of sobbing mourners dressed in black in each town. Explain that to me. Multitudes of sobbing mourners dressed in black in each town. 600 years ago, I assume there was some bones in this coffin. Sobbing mourners dressed in black in each town. For many in Serbia, the year 1989 marked not the fall of communism, but the 600th anniversary of the defeat at Kosovo Polji. Well, that's just to, 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 to give some detail to Hobsbawm's concern that history becomes, that history can reach back and remythologize, mythologize or remythologize an event and create a cultural enterprise. And in this case, of course, it was avenging the death 600 years ago of their fellow Serbian. Well, in yesterday's New York Times, I've told you I'm going to read the paper to you today. In yesterday's New York Times, there appeared an article, a follow-up article, about the murder of 29 Muslim worshippers and the, and the wounding of 90 others by uh, Baruch Goldstein in February in Hebron at the Cave of the Patriarchs. And here's what it said. In a steady stream, they came by the hundreds today to recite afternoon prayers at the grave of Baruch Goldstein, many bowing deeply to kiss the tombstone of the Hebron mass killer and to proclaim him a holy man. Whether young or old, they approached the burial mound surrounded by stones placed in mourning as though it were a shrine. Dozens hugged and kissed the tombstone. Some kneeled to kiss the grave itself, including one young man who cried out, Hero of Israel! Hero of Israel, there should be more like him. Now, you must understand that whatever revulsion we feel about this kind of thinking is simply a milder form of the same thinking. That's not to say we shouldn't feel a certain revulsion. But the point here is not to feel... The point here is to understand something about human nature, human culture. What is going on here is not going on because certain people are wicked or deluded. There's certainly wickedness and delusion in the world, but it's everywhere. And so the point is not to scapegoat the scapegoaters, but to come to some clarity about the, the fix that we are in. 
A few days earlier in the New York Times, there appeared the following story. This all has to do with generativity, the generativity of, of, uh, of violence. And this is key to us today because if we live in a world where violence is losing its generativity, that doesn't mean that it will stop. It means that it will, it will crank itself up into more, into more horrendous forms in order to try to achieve generativity. So, this is really what I'm doing here is a story about generativity. A few days earlier, there appeared the following story. It, the story is entitled, Arab Clan's Obligation, Revenge Hebron Dead. And the story begins this way. Karama Jabri has five sons. Today they are plowing the fields next to, next to their house. Soon, when the Israelis lift the round-the-clock curfew that has been enforced since the massacre of Palestinian worshippers by a Jewish settler, they will return to their small garage to repair cars. And sometime, before they die, they promise to see the relatives and friends who were killed or wounded in the massacre avenged. This is how it goes here, said Nabir Jabri, as he looked up from behind the mule-driven plow that was churning up the damp earth. When a son or father is killed, we must take revenge. It is a social obligation. We do not rest until the soul of our relative is avenged. In other words, it's, it's also generative on the other side. The act is, is, it has a generativity on those who suffered from the violence as well as on those who side with the one who perpetrated it. If, by the way, if and when they take revenge, then, then they will be lionized just as Baruch Goldstein is lionized on his side of the divide, you see. So what I'm, trying to, I'm trying to keep the eye here on generativity, cultural generativity of violence. The last thing I'll quote from this article is this. If the settlers in Hebron had at least condemned the massacre, we could have begun a dialogue, said Dr. Mohammed O. Tamimi, whose clinic has been closed, since, closed by the curfew. But their decision to make Goldstein a hero has made them equal to Goldstein in, in our eyes. Every one of them is now in danger, including their wives and children, end quote. So the escalation goes on. Now, you know that passage I quoted so often from, from uh, Howard Nemiroff, which is, the murders become memories and the memories become the beautiful obligation. Well, memories become, the murders become memories and the memories become beautiful obligations. That's what happens with myth. That's the world of myth. What happens in a world where the gospel is at work, where the paraclete is at work? Well, I have a couple of newspaper stories from this week. You know, I don't have to do, I don't have to go into the newspaper morgue, you know. This is not, this is not, heavy-duty research I'm doing. This is, this is just reading the New York Times over my sandwich at lunch, and uh, it just all falls into my lap. Okay, well, here it is from... Uh, this, is, this is an example of the temple veil being rent from top to bottom. This is from um, last Tuesday. There's a controversy now about the history of the Alamo. And this is a big, big issue in Texas, you know, because the Alamo is very, very important to... Texas history. So here's how the story reads. Davy Crockett did not wear a coonskin cap, and he tried to surrender at the Alamo rather than fighting to the death. William Barrett Travis, the Alamo's commander, crazed from drinking mercury to treat venereal disease, never issued his legendary challenge for the brave to join him across his sword-drawn line in the dirt. General Sam Houston who was at least wise enough not to send reinforcements to the besieged fort, was a girdle-wearing opium addict. What's going on here? Compare this to these other earlier stories I read to you. Do you see what's happening? It's the opposite is happening. And the story goes on. The Alamo is part of an Anglo-Texan creation myth said Cynthia Orozco, who teaches an updated version of Texas history at the University of Texas at San Antonio. 
an Anglo-Texan creation myth. So anyway, let me go on with the story. Quoting here, uh, 47-year-old Lawrence Wright, who led a Texas Writers Forum, he said, When I was young, you could never have this kind of discussion about Texas history. There was an orthodoxy of belief, and nothing was more orthodox than the story of where we came from. Isn't that it? And that's especially true if where we came from was a story of redemptive violence, a, a story of generative violence. I got a kick out of this passage in the story. Quote, If much of the historical record once read like Butler's Lives of the Saints, it now reads more like People magazine. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Uh, but notice, there's one thing to notice about this thing. It's very good. It's very good. This, this is deconstruction at its best. It's deconstructing the myth that obscures the generative nature of the founding violence. 